Well, good evening. It's a, it's a pleasure, as always, to be able to open God's Word with you. And let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. Uh, in God's providence, this wasn't necessarily planned this way, but in God's providence, last week, Pastor Dale walked us through part of 1 Peter chapter 2. But I want to look, at you, uh, look with you uh, this evening at 1 Peter chapter 1, specifically the first two verses of this letter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. It's a short passage, but very rich, and I invite you to follow along as we read from God's Word this evening. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is God's Word for us this evening. Let's come before Him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for, once again, this privilege that we have to hold Your Word, to read Your Word, to be shaped and changed by Your Word. And I pray now, Father, that you would bless all of us with the message that you have for us this evening. Help me to speak clearly and all of us to listen keenly for the words of Christ. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This world is not our home. That's one of those truths, one of those theological statements that we confess as Christians and yet we often forget in the day-to-day of life. Although we know that the Bible portrays us as God's people, as the church, as being a pilgrim people, our hearts are, are prone to put down roots in this world. And, and this tendency of our hearts, this, this longing for earthly security and earthly comfort, often leads us to frustration to disappointment, even to anger and fear. If you need evidence of that, just scroll back through your Facebook feed for the last several months. Uh, We see this all around us, don't we? I'm guessing all of us have had uh, conversations recently that that sound something like this. Someone will say, I'm just so frustrated by what the government is doing or isn't doing. I'm so fearful of what we'll wake up to on November 4th if This person or that person wins. I'm just disappointed with how churches have responded to this pandemic. Or what will happen to us if things get even worse and we start to face real persecution in our country? Well, these are issues and questions that many of us, many Christians are are wrestling with. There's, There's an almost palpable sense in our churches, in our communities of of fear, of uncertainty, of anger. And often what lies behind those fears, those tensions, is the feeling that we as Christians have somehow gotten out of step with the culture. We don't fit in. We don't belong. We aren't heard. We aren't respected. It feels like people in power either look down on us or just overlook us altogether. 
And this feeling can begin to seep into all of our relationships and to every area of our lives. Many of us have family members who don't share our faith. That can lead to tensions. Many of us have employers or co-workers who reject your beliefs and your values. All of us live as Christians in a culture where the most powerful voices in government and education and entertainment uh, reject or ignore the teaching of Scripture. And it seems like this situation just gets worse year after year after year after year. We feel like we are being pushed to the margins and we don't know what to do about it. Well, in the passage we just read, the Apostle Peter is writing to Christians who were experiencing these very tensions. He's writing to Christians who, who had to live out their faith in the context of unbelieving families and uncaring employers and unfair rulers. He's writing to Christians who were quite literally being pushed to the margins and were facing, therefore, temptations to give in to fear and anger and the passions, Peter says, which had characterized their former way of life. And so as Peter writes to these Christians going through these circumstances, it's interesting to see how he opens this letter. He opens the letter by reminding them of who they are, by reminding them of, of two basic truths about their identity, our identity as Christians. He reminds them first that Christians are exiles. Christians are exiles. And secondly, he reminds them that Christians are elect. It's a very simple outline Peter gives us. Let's look at both of these truths together this evening. Christians are exiles and Christians are elect. Peter highlights this first truth in the opening verse of the book. You'll notice it there in verse 1. He addresses his audience as elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now those are all regions in Asia Minor, what we would call uh, Turkey today. And Peter tells the believers there that they are exiles. Exiles of the dispersion is what he calls them. Now, among the Jews at this time, the dispersion was kind of a technical phrase that was used to refer to any Jews who lived outside of Israel. So even if your family uh, had lived in a city for generations, if you were a Jew and you were not living in Israel, you're part of the dispersion. And Peter picks up on this term that would have been very common to the churches at this time and applies it to all the Christian communities in Asia Minor. Now, we know that there would most likely have been Jews in these churches, but we also know from 1 Peter, other places in 1 Peter, that there are Gentiles that Peter is addressing as well. So we have to ask ourselves, why is Peter using this term about Jewish, Jewish people living outside their homeland to refer to Gentile Christians? Well, Peter is doing this intentionally. And he's communicating a very important truth, both Jews and Gentiles, to these Christians. He, he wants them to see that because of their faith, all of them 
are like people who are forced to live outside their homeland. All of them experience a kind of exile as believers. And this theme of exile is one that Peter weaves through the entire book. In chapter 1, verse 17, he commands uh, his readers to conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. In chapter 2, verse 11, he writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And then importantly, at the very end of the book, he comes back to this theme. In chapter 5, Peter refers to Rome, which is the city he's writing from, as Babylon, the place where God's people had been sent when they were in exile in the Old Testament. So what is Peter's point? What, what is it that he's trying to communicate to these early Christians and to us today? Well, Peter is telling us something vital about who we are, about our identity as Christians. He's helping us to understand what we should expect in this world. We are exiles. We are sojourners. We don't belong here. This world is not our home. And implicit in that identity of being exiles is the reality of suffering. Suffering is one of the main topics that Peter addresses in this letter. And Peter is already acknowledging the suffering that these early Christians were going through when he calls them exiles. Because they are not at home in the world, because they do not share the values or the lifestyle or the belief of the culture around them, the world is doing everything in its power to either force them to conform or to condemn them outright. And that means that these Christians were enduring earthly suffering. Something which we also are told to expect as Christians. Now most of us, most likely, will not be called to martyrdom in one sense, and yet in another sense, all of us are called to martyrdom. We are all called to lay down our lives for the gospel. We do this as we live faithfully in relationships with unbelievers. We do this as we fight fervently for holiness and obedience in our Christian walk. We do this as we submit joyfully to unjust authorities that often fall short. Christian obedience, no matter what your life looks like, involves suffering at some level. Now that might not sound like the most encouraging way to open a letter to a church. You might be wondering, is Peter just preaching a kind of sanctified stoicism here? Is he just telling us as Christians, you know, just submit to suffering, life is hard, it's just part of life? Or is there more going on here? Well, verse 2 shows us that there is. In fact, Peter's reminder that Christians are exiles who endure earthly suffering is really just the preface to a far greater truth. The truth that Christians are also the elect who enjoy eternal security. Christians are elect. 
Look with me once again at verse 2. Peter says that these believers are exiles, which involves suffering and trial, as we just said. But he adds that all-important qualifier, doesn't he? You see, Christians are not just exiles. They are elect exiles. And that election, Peter says, comes from the triune hand of God. And so in verse 2, Peter says that we are elect, look with me at verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Now there is so much packed into these words that we could spend a whole series exploring their meaning. But let me just touch briefly on a few points uh, in the time we have together. You'll notice, first off, that Peter views election and really our salvation as a whole as the work of the triune God. We often reduce the story of the gospel to just the work of Christ. Have you noticed this? We'll say, Jesus came and died on the cross for my sins. That's a glorious truth. It's a good summary of the gospel. But Peter wants us to see the bigger picture, the richer picture, that gives equal weight to the work of the Father and the Spirit as well. And in this verse, he explores how each member of the Trinity is involved in this glorious work of our redemption. He says, firstly, that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now this is perhaps what we most often think of when we talk about election as Christians. Uh, It places the emphasis on the divine origin of our salvation. In other words, it reminds us that God is our Savior. God is our Redeemer. God is the one who has not only prepared salvation for us, but who has predestined us for that salvation. And this is a wonderfully comforting truth. It underscores the fact that Our salvation is not based on our wisdom or work. It's not based on our own character or our own choice. It's based fundamentally on this, the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, if you're a Christian facing the kind of uncertainty and tension and instability that Peter's first readers were living through, this truth gives you a place to stand. Because if this is true, that you are saved and that salvation is based not on your circumstances, but on what God Himself has decreed, then it doesn't matter ultimately whether or not the culture accepts you. It doesn't matter ultimately whether or not your boss is fair to you. It doesn't even, in light of eternity, matter if your family agrees with your beliefs. Your eternal security is grounded upon and flows from the unshakable providence of our unchanging God. You are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Secondly, Peter draws our attention to the work of the Holy Spirit. He says we are elect in the sanctification of the Spirit. Now when we think of sanctification... Uh, we, we most often think about the progressive work of the Spirit in our lives, right? Um, how is it that the Catechism puts it, kids, that sanctification is a work whereby we are enabled more and more to die to sin and live to righteousness? 
And that's a vital aspect of the Christian life. It's one that Peter is going to focus on in this letter. But there's another aspect of our sanctification that we sometimes forget and that I think Peter is highlighting for us here. You'll remember um, that Peter is saturated in the Old Testament. You'll get it if you read his letters. You'll, you'll get it if you listen to his sermons in the book of Acts. Peter is constantly going back to the Old Testament to make sense of who Jesus is and what it means to be a Christian. And he reminds us with his language here of the way in which God sovereignly sanctified particular people and places and objects in the Old Testament, meaning there were times where God would set apart something for His service or for His possession. You can read examples of this in places like Exodus or Leviticus where we read about basins or tents or altars, different things that are set apart to the service of God. And Peter is reminding these early Christians that their election points to something similar. God's work of election is not just an abstract decree. It's not just an esoteric doctrine. It's something that actually changes our status before God. And it changes our relationship to God and our relationship to the world. Because we are elect, we have been sanctified in the Spirit. We've been set apart. We've been separated. We've been sanctified. And you can see once more how this truth begins to address the tension these early Christians were living with. This explains why they don't feel like they fit in society. They have been set apart. They've been sanctified. They don't fit because they're not supposed to fit. Being in step with the Spirit inevitably puts you out of step with the world as if Peter is reminding them, you are exiles because you are elect. You're set apart. This is not a bad thing. It is an integral part of what it means to be a Christian, of what it means to be elect. Thirdly, Peter focuses us on the work of Christ in our salvation and election. He says that we are elect for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. So part of the outworking of our election, part of the fruit of our salvation, is that we become obedient to Jesus Christ. Peter unpacks this phrase in uh, verse 14 of chapter 1 when he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So as the elect of God, we are to imitate God. As those who have been set apart by the Spirit, we are to walk in the Spirit. As those who have been redeemed by the obedience of Christ, we are to be obedient to Christ. And we can only do that because, as Peter adds, we have been sprinkled with His blood. Again, Thinking back to the Old Testament. How were unclean things made clean? It would be sprinkled with the blood of the sacrificial lamb. And so we today, 
Though we are unclean in ourselves, are made clean by the sprinkling of the blood, not of a lamb, not of a bull, not of a goat, but of the Son of God, Jesus Christ Himself. And that blood, that sprinkling, is the sign and the seal that we have been saved, that we have been set apart, that we will be sanctified for His glory. So as we step back from this brief but dense exploration of the doctrine of election, we see that being elect is not just an abstract statement that we tuck into our confession of faith and put at the back of our hymnal and leave it there. This is something very practical. It doesn't weaken our walk. It doesn't make us robots. Election is about the work and the will of the triune God in planning and accomplishing and applying redemption to us and for us. And it's in that sense that Christians are reminded here by Peter that you and I are reminded part of your identity is this. You are elect. So how do these truths help us today? How can we embrace our identity as elect exiles? Well, recognizing these truths helps us. It helps us specifically to set our sights on heaven. It helps us to break free from the tyranny of worldly-mindedness. It takes absolutely zero effort to be focused on this world. It's right in front of you every single day. The bills come in the mail. The problems come walking through the door. You get texts and phone calls, you read the news, you see the world all around you. It's very hard for us to remember that this world is not our home, because it feels like it's our home. And so much of our disappointment and our fear and our frustration comes from this simple fact. We forget that this world is not our home. So when we're overwhelmed by how hard it is to raise godly children in an ungodly world, we start to parent out of fear. When we're frustrated by the fact that denominations and institutions that once stood firm have caved to the pressures of our culture, we give in to bitterness and cynicism. When we see our neighborhoods and our nation torn apart by selfishness and sin and division, we give in to anger and outrage ourselves. Why is that our response? Why should those things surprise us? Well, we respond this way, don't we? Because deep down, we expect that life should be easy, should be comfortable, We expect our lives should be free of friction and turmoil. In other words, we forget that we are exiles. Brothers and sisters, we don't belong here. We're just passing through, as the hymn says. And the only way we can walk as pilgrims is if we learn to think as pilgrims, to recognize and remember our identity as elect exiles of the kingdom of God. Now, don't mishear me with this. I am not saying that we don't care about the world, that we don't care about the problems around us. Far from it. 
Part of the work of Christ through His church is expressed in our love and compassion for those around us. And Peter is going to move from this basic truth about our identity as Christians to speak to wives living with unbelieving husbands and slaves who are employed by, bound to, pagan masters and Christians who have to live with governments that exercise tyranny over them unchecked. This is not floating up here above daily life. Peter is saying this is the foundation of our daily life as Christians. And part of what it means to be a Christian is to live faithfully in those tough situations. But we don't pin our hopes or build our identity around the circumstances of our society or our culture. It's only when we embrace our identity as exiles that we will be able to bring to the world the gospel hope it so desperately needs. We are exiles. We have to start with that identity as we enter into the problems of life. We are also, of course, elect, as we've seen. And that election really is connected with our exile. Follow me with this for a moment. Uh, Peter makes it clear later in the book that He's not just saying that we can endure exile because we know we'll one day have blessings to kind of make up for it. That would be to kind of separate our election, the good parts of being a Christian, from exile, the bad parts of being a Christian. That's not what Peter's doing. He's not just saying, well, the good things outweigh the bad in the end, so grin and bear it. No, Peter's actually saying something far more profound and far more helpful. He's saying we can endure exile... Because it is one of the primary means that God will use to enable us to enjoy the blessings of our election. Election and exile go hand in hand. While the saints in the Old Testament were sent into exile because of their sins, we are sent into exile so that we might be sanctified. Being in exile means that we are enabled to embrace the suffering we face in our sojourning because God uses that suffering that we go through to magnify His glory and to call us into that glory. Here's how the old Scottish Presbyterian minister Samuel Rutherford put it. He said, When I am in the cellar of affliction, I look for the Lord's choicest wines. Suffering is often the stage on which our sanctification plays out. And suffering is often the means God uses to bless our witness to the watching world. Do you realize that? We pray week after week, and I hope you pray day after day, for the conversion of the nations, for, for people in this country to turn back to God. But how often do we think, Lord, let these people turn back to God so that I don't have to suffer as a Christian by being on the margins? When God's purpose might be to put us on the margins, to lead us through suffering so that our neighbors and our family and our friends and our rulers might come to know Christ as their own. One of the points that Peter comes back to again and again in the letter of 1 Peter is this. We as Christians are going to suffer, but how we suffer will have a major impact on our witness. 
when we suffer well, when we remember that Christ suffered before us and that He uses our suffering to sanctify us, to purify us, we are showing the world how beautiful Christ is. As Peter puts it in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, If then you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Notice that language of election again. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might walk in His steps. And verse 15 of chapter 2 tells us God's purpose in giving us this example. He says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. This is what happens when we rejoice in our suffering. This is what happens when we endure our suffering. This is what happens when we season our suffering with the gospel of grace. If every hardship brings you to frustration, how is that any different from how your neighbor responds? If every trial provokes you to complaining, how is your example going to show anyone who Jesus is? We're called to walk through suffering. And we're called to witness through our suffering. And the promise which Peter holds out for us is this. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And that promise changes everything, doesn't it? We don't build our identity around what fills the headlines. We don't build our identity around who is in the White House. We don't build our identity around whether or not our lives are comfortable or our churches are influential. We build our identity on this. We are elect exiles. And this world is not our home. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we we thank You for this truth. It is presented to us as good news. We pray that we would receive it as such. Lord, we pray that You would free us from the idol of comfort, from the idol of safety and security, from the idol of our own ease, And help us, Lord, to have the mind of Christ which sought not to be served but to serve and to lay down His life as a ransom for many. Lord, let us imitate Christ enduring in the face of evil, suffering even for doing good and seeing in this, Lord, that You were not abandoning us but that You were leading us through the wilderness to the promised land. And Lord, we pray that you would use our suffering to be a light of witness to a watching world. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand now and respond to this word from the Lord with Trinity Hymnal number 103. Holy God, we praise your name.
wake up tomorrow morning and we move into our day and no doubt, as Ben has alluded to, there's going to be a temptation. There's going to be a hardship. There's going to be a difficult moment, maybe a difficult relationship. There's going to be a choice point where if I go this way, I please God. If I go this way, I displease God. How do I live? How do we live tomorrow, this week, as an exile, an elect exile? How do we do that? Well, we don't look inside ourselves. We look up and we look out. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with everything good to do his will, working in you what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus, to whom belongs glory forever and ever. Amen.